You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Charbel, it is truly an honor to speak with you on Real Faith Stories. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. Looking forward to it. I have a quote from you that I'd like to just open with and then hear about your backstory. The quote is this, what you become in life doesn't have to be determined by where you came from. Tell us about that. Uh, that's loaded right there. So I grew up in the, the hills of Lebanon on the southern side of the country. That's the area where you know most of the civil war have kind of ravaged through when I was a young boy, and grew up in a poor family, a youngest of seven, God seeing that that one day I will be able to leave that country and leave alive, that's number one, mm. and two, end up in the U.S. and here uh, in 1995, and really build a life for myself and for my family that every man, uh, woman, and child in my country or any other country outside of this country will dream of. And I feel like I am the picture of the American dream of what somebody could be when they put their heart and their soul and their mind into it, work hard and, and thrive to succeed. Um, and that's, that's really the, the, the story of triumph um, and be able to just overcome so many obstacles. Mm -hmm. Some of the simplest ones are just learning how to speak English. <laughs> so you left Lebanon at what age? I was 24 years old when I left. What prompted you to make the decision to leave at that point in your life? I have struggled pretty much for my entire adulthood through the Civil War. I did not see a day of peace since I was six years old. The norm was uh, as soon as you become of age 18, 19, 20 years old, most of my friends have migrated to different ends of the country. I have friends that I grew up with everywhere from Scandinavian country to Brazil to Paraguay to Canada, some here in the U.S., very few, two of them. I can count that on one hand, mm. uh, that have been able to make it to the U.S., but this was the ultimate dream for me is to be able to not only leave the country, but to be able to come here to the U.S. Okay. So how did you accomplish that? I was sponsored by a family that was related to my ex-wife, and they were able to gracefully uh, sponsor me on an immigrant visa to come here, guaranteed me shelter and, and a job, temporary job, until I was able to find my own standing. So you have to have that in place, obviously, before you are able to come over to the United States. Yes, 100%. You said you felt like you had a higher calling to leave Lebanon. What did you mean by that? Since I was young, I would say about 18, 19 years old, I felt like I have a lot more to offer and a lot more to give than, than just to grow up on that side of the country and be able to do the normal thing of working and going to school. Mm -hmm. I've always felt that God spoke to me in dreams and visions, and my friends will discount it sometimes as crazy ideas or things that are completely out of the norm. I was always a dreamer. I've always had dreams of becoming more and offering more than just the limited amount of resources and the time that I have in Lebanon. It, my, my thoughts and ideas and dreams were completely beyond uh, my peers or anybody that I knew. 
And it's not something that I could credit myself for that at all. He sounds like Joseph. <laughs> Thank you. That's humbling. Share some of those dreams that you had that people looked at you and said, Charbel, you're crazy. <laughs> that was kind of my middle name at the time. Every time I come up with some of these things. Crazy? Yes. <laughs> so, number one, I've, whatever little English that I've learned, I was able to learn it from cartoons and movies. Simple as that. The the other things, just I had a dream of becoming a business owner. Nobody in my immediate household was a business owner, but I I envisioned a place where kids can go after school and hang out, make friendships and, and enjoy each other's companies. There was no such thing as an arcade. We call it arcade today, but mm -hmm. I had that dream of creating a club. And I was about 18, 19 years old. I worked as hard as I could possibly can and, and after school and, and work overtime. I worked double shifts in a, in a shoe factory on the Israeli borders. I was able to save enough money in about a year and a half to be able to launch that first one. Really? That was the first successful business that I was able to accomplish. There were so many other things that did not pan out, but I think there were like training grounds for me to be able to launch my first business and have it to be successful and in a landmark in the area that I was in. And so you were 19 at the time you launched that? I was 19 when I first started. By the time I've accomplished it, uh, saving enough money, I was just a little bit over 20 and a half. And so that was one of the first dreams you had that God helped you accomplish. Along with being in here in the U.S., uh, my childhood friend, his name is Andy Robinson from all names, again. Mm -hmm. They grew up in Lebanon. They're a family from Chicago. Me and him would just spend all of our waking hours uh, after school and after time talking about how could it be, how, how can we make a difference in the U.S., and one day we'll be here together, and all of these things that were just impossible at the time, that for an average boy growing up on the hills of Lebanon, it, it, it was nearly impossible because a lot of people that you know, whether across the country or here in the Northeast, that are from the origin of Lebanon, have came here early 1900. So they were professionals that were able to have access to visas. So just getting here into the country was a dream come true because at the time when they came, there was a time of peace and it was a migration instead of almost like a refugee situation and, and, and fleeing the country. Mm -hmm. So they came in here in a time of peace and they came here because of professional visas. They all were doctors, lawyers, already had higher level of education. But at the time that I was growing up and for somebody that my age that came in here in the 90s, mid 90s, it was almost impossible, you know, as, as close as impossible as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. But God grants the impossible. And that's, that's really one of the things that I am the recipient of, of being able to just speak to you today and being here. Agreed. I'm going back to when you came to the United States, you had the family that sponsored you. What was the first job you had? Because now you own a general contracting business, correct? Yes, I do. Tell us how you got to that point from that start. The Coppolinos, their son, um, had worked in a football camp that was run by a gentleman named Ron Burton. And Ron Burton, you know, I did not know who the New England Patriots were. I'm, I'm totally oblivious. I'm just <laughs> trying to make a, a living. So, Ron Burton was one of the running back for the New England Patriots. 
as part of his life mission, he decided to open a camp for inner city kids that in the summer, it's a summer camp, a football summer camp, and they will come from all over the New England area and they will come to this 400 acre farm and they will be trained by him and by his uh, son and other coaches how to play football and get them, you know, another way to get them out of trouble and be able to give them the opportunity to be mentored and coached by real good people. I did not know any of that. I knew that Mr. Ron Burton is a very, very kind, large uh, African-American man, and he would call me big guy all the time. That was my nickname. He basically said, if you could dig some ditches in here and to plant some, some bushes, you got the job. That was my interview in less than five seconds. So, he gave me the job. So let me clarify. Your sponsors <laughs> knew him, right? Yes, yes. And so they connected you with him, and he said, if you can dig holes to plant trees, you're hired. And that was the job interview. <laughs> exactly. All right. That was it. And I started that same day. <laughs> so it was, it was on the spot. <laughs> okay. So what happened next? So I dug ditches for almost uh, the entire summer of that year. I came in here in June to part of the fall and almost into the winter until he came back and he said, I can't believe you're still here digging ditches. <laughs> this job is over. But basically, I kept digging ditches until he said, uncle. Um, <laughs> he transformed that whole area into a mini Athen. He wanted like bushes and roses and things planted and in areas that he called it the gardens. And that was that was my first job. Thank God for him and mm. for his family. I came to learn that his entire family is involved in sports and, and activities and helping inner city kids at the time. Uh, I was very privileged to have that. And what happened then after he said, okay, you're done, Charbel, with this job? Where'd you go from there? So from there, with the help of a few people from church, I start looking for work. Nobody was looking at everything that I've done mm -hmm. in Lebanon. They were looking at me as a 24-year-old young man that is going to take any job he can get. Nobody sat down with me and asked me about my past or what did I do before. They assumed that I went to college somehow and now I need my first job in the U.S. Uh, so as a result of that, I basically was just dabbling with entry-level jobs, the thought of, of starting my own business or working at a higher level of, of business management or anything like that did not cross anybody's path because they were looking at me and talking to me and uh, to a point where, you know, Charbel, you don't speak English, so maybe you should take this job. That's an entry level. You know, I, I could manage with conversational English, but it wasn't, it wasn't until few years later that I had a better command of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so as a combination of my young age and lack of control over how I roll my tongue and some of my <laughs> foreign language <laughs> slash uh, heavy accent mm -hmm. kind of limited me from applying for better positions. So I've worked three part-time jobs in 96. I was working for McDonald for a couple of weeks. I was working at a gas station as a second shift and i was working also in an auto body shop taking dismantling cars apart and working for that was my main job paying me 12 bucks an hour the shift happened when the auto body manager which is uh, the owner who's a 
father, son, and his wife as the owners and operators had to let me go because he couldn't afford my uh, insurance. Mm. And that was like three to four months into the job. That was just barely call it temporary. And I felt like the rug is being pulled from underneath me. How am I going to, you know, make it? How am I going to pay my rent? I've, yeah. I've already moved into a small house and paying rent. And I have a six month old child at the time. Things were getting tough and I felt like the walls were caving in on me at that time of just not knowing what to do or how to do anything. So what did you do then? I did what everybody would do, just grab a newspaper and see that the help wanted. And I started looking until I found something that said, no experience necessary, selling used and new cars. And a nearby dealership was just a stone throw away from where that auto body shop was. Mm -hmm. And I went and applied and they said, okay, you, you basically will get paid commission. We'll train you. And uh, if you make it, you could make X amount of dollars a year. And I had no other choice. So I went to Sears and I bought a $99 suit off the shelf that basically comes with the shirt, tie, pants, and jacket. Yeah. And I was ready for my uh, debut at the auto dealer. It was a Dodge dealership. And they trained me for about four or five hours until lunchtime and uh, recommended that I go down and introduce myself to the manager. And when I was there introducing myself, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I could show them a car. I said, sure, I'll show you a car. So I went with them. I asked the manager where can I find the keys. He gave me the keys. I went on a test drive. And by the time I came back, I have sold that vehicle that I was <laughs> test driving. This is the same day you start after four hours of training. Yes, on my lunch break. That's how it happened. They were expecting me to come back. I was doing a test drive. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, I told the manager, I remember his name was Joe Stranieri. I came to him and I said, they wanted to buy the car. and Here's a check from them for the deposit. He was looking perplexed at me and asked me, who are you again? <laughs> I, said, I said, my name is Charbel and I'm I'm one of the trainee in here. And he said, you just sold a car on your test drive. I said, yeah. And he said, you're hired. <laughs> so that was my first start, basically interacting with people. And I really, all I did on that test drive is tell my story and mm. tell the people that were with me that I came from Lebanon, not even a year and a half ago. And I've been struggling to make it. And I just found this job. And, and really, we didn't talk about the car at all. And I think they took pity on me and bought the car from me. <laughs> and thank God for them. Three months later, I was doing the finance manager job at that same company. I realized that I'm really good at numbers and they realized my potential as far as dealing with clients. From there, I kept selling and financing until one of my friends at the car dealership left and became a loan officer for a local bank. He always was promising me, Charbel, as soon as I get my position, I'm going to come back and recruit you. Uh -huh. Lo and behold, one day I was uh, doing my job and here he is, Jeff, coming in with somebody that, with him that I've never met before and introduced us and he said, this is our next recruit. On that day, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse and I left with them. I started working in the mortgage business, basically from making the calls to people to do a refinance or purchase mortgages all over New England, to going and meet with them, to getting my notary public, to closing documentation before attorneys were doing closing. So I was like a one-man mobile 
shop of a mortgage a broker. You were? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How long did you do that? Uh, so I stayed in that industry for almost 10 years. Okay. And during that, I realized that this is a way for me to learn how to be able to realize my piece of the American dream Mm -hmm. and be able to buy a home. That was the dream come through. That was, this is the pinnacle of success is that you basically buy a home, regardless of how that home looked like. That was my big audacious goal that I wanted to accomplish in my first couple of years of being in here. Lo and behold, not even three years after I've arrived in here, uh, with 500 bucks to my name, that I was able to buy a home and buy it cash, which was a miracle by itself. Absolutely. During this 10-year period with the mortgage company, you said early on, when you lived in Lebanon, the Lord spoke to you in visions and dreams. What types of dreams was he giving you during this 10-year period? I saw myself as a success. In my dreams, I saw all of these things happening. And what I'm talking about is about the business, about the success, about going through trials, about going through divorce, about going through the heartache. I saw myself on the other end. I saw myself becoming extremely successful. I saw in my dreams specifically accomplishment way before I came to realize them. So for instance, I saw myself owning that first home. And I had no clue how to do that. I did not have credit. I did not have the financial whereabout. I did not have anything that would qualify me to purchase a home. However, I saw myself owning that home, the home that I was researching. Was this a desire that was inside of you? Or did you feel like the Lord gave this to you as a thought? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yes, it does. To be honest with you, it was... Maybe a combination of both, but there was no way in my physical being that I'll be able to accomplish that. Mm. That's why I credit God for that, because I I can't fathom how can I buy a house. I was making less than $23,000 a year at that time in 1998, and I did not have any credit. Nobody came in and said, this is how you establish your credit. So I did not have any of those accolades that you would come in, you would qualify for a mortgage, and just like for my clients, and be able to achieve that. So none of those things were there. However, I saw myself as a homeowner. Yeah. And I showed up to an auction one day and I had no clue how to pay for the home after I bid on the auction. I was so green and naive that I screwed up the auction for everybody that attended. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I had about 25 people hating me on the first time that I've, you know, attempted to even buy a house. I overbid everybody and I came time to pay for the property and I didn't have the money. There was tax implications that were needed to be satisfied to be able to achieve that. Plus, I overbid myself and I get carried away of just raising my pallet and showing them my number. And they took me seriously because I had the deposit of $5,000. That's all that I had. They end up canceling the auction, telling everybody that they're going to reschedule the auction for the next month. The month later, they called me and addressed me by Mr. Najim. Automatically there on that day, I realized that they forgot I was the guy that screwed up the auction for everybody. <laughs> so I said, of course, I'll come. So I showed up to the auction and there was nobody there. No kidding. It was just me, the auctioneer, and the tax collector. 
the lady that was uh, from the tax collector's office was standing next to me. And here I am standing, looking up to her and trying to convince her not to bid against me. I confessed to her right then and there that I was the guy that screwed up the previous auction just to get some sympathy. And I told her kind of in between what the auctioneer is doing that I had no money except for the $5,000 deposit that I had. And she looked at me and said, if you bid over me one more time, I'll let you have it. And I could not believe my ears. The bid was at $4,000 and I bid 4,500 bucks and she let me have the house. Incredible. The auctioneer looked at me, Brian, and he said in his 30 year history, he's never had to refund a $500 or any kind of refund from a deposit check on any home he's ever auctioned. These had to be from God. There was no way that I could afford any other home. Now I still had to deal with the $16,000 back taxes. So I just went, talked to the assessor. I said, I have no money. I purchased the home, but I don't have the money to pay you. Is it possible if I could pay you an increment? And gracefully, they agreed. And then they said, pay 100 bucks a month until you pay it off. Wow. And at the end of the year, after I finished fixing the house, I was planning on living in it. But at the end of the year, I basically decided that I'm going to sell it. I sold it for $120,000. Never seen the 100000 in my whole entire life. Nobody from my family has ever seen 100000 in their life. Mm-hmm. So that was truly a miracle. And when I went back to pay the taxes, they basically said, because I'm paying it earlier than expected, they waived $8,000 for penalties and interest that was accumulating on the previous owner. So God's hand was all over me from the day that I got here. Even in the time when I was working for Ron Burton, which I came to find that he was a Christian man, that because of his grace and because of what his passion for the people that that he grew up with and and the background that he came from, that he wanted to help a lot of people along the way. Mm -hmm. To the Coppolinos for their graciousness and for their hospitality and for them taking me with them to church every Sunday and be able to talk to me about the Lord and planting that seed in my heart at the early age. And to the people that just came alongside of me, I felt that God's hand was in every intersection. Every job change was an intersection. Even that firing from that auto body dealership was an intersection of my life. God had to bring me into that car dealership to be able to learn customer skills and and communication, you know, improve my command of the, the English language. His hand was on me in every single thing. I was just looking at being let go from a job as a disappointment, as something that, that I'm going to struggle with. And God was like, trust me, just move, just move. I don't want you here. I don't want you to just be the best auto body person. I want you to move on and realize the best dreams for your life that I have just planted in you. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to see it back then when you're going through it. But when you look back, you see some of these intersections of your life and how amazing God has just redeemed my future by changing my path and by closing certain doors and opening others. It was just so incredible. Yeah, absolutely. During this time when you're moving from job to another job and you aren't necessarily seeing it for what it is now that you look back on it, what were some of your prayers? What were your heart's cries to God during these times? 
That's a great question. And, and I did have a lot of those. A lot of those were in desperation of me missing my family. And a lot of those were in desperation of sometimes the agony and physical pain of just not being able to sleep and working, you know, two to three jobs sometimes. I was walking between my second and third job. And the New England weather in here is not forgiving at all. Mm -hmm. Making my way through slush and snow to make it to the next job to change my clothes from McDonald's clothes to a gas attendant at a gas station at a midnight shift was not easy. And man, did I have a lot of desperation at the time and I had a lot of anxieties. I had a lot of uh, feelings of being almost forsaken mm -hmm. and basically just feeling like I'm on an island by myself and I'm fighting. I'm a one-man army fighting by myself and not seeing the hand of God over every single thing that happened in my life. It's so easy to look back, but when you're going through it, boy, is it lonely. Boy, is, is it tough. Mm -hmm. And the hardest part of it is just to realize that he's never forsaken me. He's never let any of, of those situations just go to waste. Every single one of those times and those prayers was just the true heart cry for me. Why did you bring me here? The question and the agony is like, why did you bring me here? To be lonely like this and to be able to not be able to just be with my family and not be able to be happy with my marriage. It was just one letdown after another. Sometimes I have to be honest that I was just having a hissy fit with God, and I, especially the time where my loneliness had gotten to me to the point where life was meaningless and, and it was it was not worth living. My idea of coming to the United States was not what I imagined it to be. It was filled with hard work and long hours and and being the toughest part probably for me was just to to be completely disconnected from my emotional support that is my family support and realizing that this is a necessary rite of passage to be able to just come in and realize my future as a business leader and as a father and as a as a husband and as a mentor to the people that God is going to bring into my life, that they have gone or going through the same things that I have experienced. Mm -hmm. And to be able to put on the table the parts of my life that nobody wants to admit, that nobody wants to admit that they failed and they got up and failed again and, and they got up again and made it. Those stories of those years became the absolutely most important part of my life where I could connect and relate to a lot of people that come to our path today. No doubt. I'm going back to the mortgage business, Charbel. Mm -hmm. You left the mortgage business, and what happened after that? I did not leave the mortgage business till about, I want to say 2007, 2008, right before the collapse of the market. At that time, I have been buying and flipping homes, just like that first home that I had purchased. And at that point, my income from my part-time job of flipping and fixing homes was three times greater than my full-time job. And I was basically running two businesses simultaneously. I was running my loan origination business, uh, working for a national bank that was located here in New England. And in the same time, running a, an operation of buying, fixing homes before HGTV came out with Fix This House and That House. 
before any of YouTube, before any of those programs, proud about I was doing that in the same time and decided that it's time to take my part-time job seriously and jump in it full-time. And that's what I did about 2008, 2009. And then you started the company, which is called Capstone? Yes. So Capstone Builders is the second generation of that initial company that we have done. We've worked for a lot of clients for many years of restoring insurance restoration and rebuilding homes that were damaged by fire or floods. And the same time, basically learning the ropes of building new homes in Massachusetts. That part was never, you know, nobody mentored me. Nobody showed me how to do it. I just trial and error. Mm-hmm. Uh, come to find out after the 2008 till 2014 that that business will dry up with the economy being uh, so much better. That's when the company was converted to Capstone Builders, Inc. And right now I am basically a developer, the main developer for the company that we purchase land and we develop them and subdivide them and build brand new constructions for just for ourselves, for our company. Amazing. From a dream of opening a community center slash arcade in Lebanon to now having this contracting business and development business in Massachusetts. Wow. Wow, Charbel. (laughs) And what I keep circling back on in my thoughts here is that, and I put this in quotes, that whole accidental experience with the house that you first purchased and they had to reconvene and do a sale a month after you screwed up the first one for everybody. (laughs) Yep. Yes. But God was in all that and amazingly brought you into a place where you could do a six-figure-plus flip. How crazy. How cool is that? I could not take credit for it even if I wanted to because it was just impossible. These are the impossible things. And you have no idea how many times that got repeated. Where if I would tell you the story and if I had met you sometime in the 2000s, you would say, that's impossible. That doesn't happen. You know, that property would go for 10 times, if not 20 times more than that in the normal market. Right. And then that got repeated three more times in the early years where I was able to purchase a house for less than $5,000 three more times. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I got cocky. I started taking credit for that. I did not give God the glory for that. And I had to admit it. And I was driving to a friend's house. And I remember coming around a bend that was called, from all places and all roads, it was called Purgatory Road. I'm pulling over to just jump on the the exit to go to my friend's house to this Bible study. And I had what people call a near-death experience where Every single one of these events that happened in my life, God reminded me of it. I did not swerve the car. Um, I, I was not involved in any accident. It was almost like a flash in my eyes mm-hmm. of every single event that God intervened on my behalf. From the time that I was fired from a job that I was getting comfortable in to the time when I purchased that first house, the voice of God was so clear Remember that I was there. Remember that home that you purchased that your friend said this is impossible? I was there. Remember that time that I saved you? I was there. Every single intersection of my life, I was reminded in less than, less than 30 seconds 
And all I could say and utter was, I am so sorry. Mm. My eyes were welling. I was crying. I knew exactly that God just wanted to grab my attention and make sure that I don't take the credit for things that he orchestrated, the things that he has done, and to remind me that who am I working for. And from that day on, we both dedicated both our businesses. So you're getting half the story. The brain behind Capstone Builders is my wife and her intellect and her uh, systematic building and management of the company. We called it Capstone to Honor God. We wanted to dedicate that business for God and to to basically, every time that somebody asked me, you know, where would you come up with the name Capstone? It came from the Bible. And they were like, from the Bible for a construction company? Yes, we're our faith-based owned company. And we decided before we named the company anything or my name or anybody's name to call it after Jesus. He is the cornerstone that the builders reject that became the capstone. And those are the kind of things that we wanted to be able to, through our company, through our business, to be able to disciple the people that work with us. And later on, my wife started her own company about seven years ago. So this is about 2013. After she helped me for all these years of establishing Capstone Builders, she started Cedarwood Realty Group. So Cedarwood Realty Group started from her thought, her idea out of the same office that we were running this business. She started her company and had grown to over $56 million in sales last year Mm. of running a team of 40 people of being one of the only companies in the area that has a chaplain and a pastor in in the company. Uh, This is not usual in the real estate business where people basically will discourage you from professing your faith, a fear of losing some clients that don't want to work with a Christian company. Mm -hmm. But we became known as the Christian company, and the people that come to our company to work with us are attracted to the company instead of being recruited, if, if that makes sense sense totally we did not go after other people that's a whole nother conversation i'd love to invite your wife on for that interview absolutely what is one of the greatest pieces of advice that you've received since you've lived in the united states i remember gary one of my attorney my attorneys that we've worked together through real estate i've noticed something unusual about him every time i come to his office i've never seen him with a client I've never seen him litigate the case in court. And all he does is he's on his computer basically all day long. And one time I just said, Gary, I've been working with you for, for a long time. What is it exactly that you do? Because his name was on the, on the law firm, but he's never represented me or anybody else that I know. And he said that one of his earlier mentors have asked him to pull a hundred dollar out of his pocket. And he did. And he said, Gary, you have $100, right? He said, yes. He said, put the $100 to work. And he was perplexed, and I was perplexed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're a lawyer. Why would you put $100 to work? And he said, his mentor told him that all his life he has worked to make money, but he did not let money work for him. And on the financial side, that was uh, an awakening for me because I've always worked very, very hard to the point where I neglected a lot of important things in my life. And I went after the money. I did not let the money work for us. And that was a mind shift that happened. I wouldn't say this is the best advice, but this was an awakening advice Mm -hmm. that 
it's not just how many hours I work during the day. It's how I use my time to work. What is my relationship to work? How, how can I leverage my time and my effort and my knowledge to be able to multiply my effort? Mm-hmm. From that advice, I started working with many young men and women that wanted to start a business and help them start that business and b- became our allies. So instead of me being the contractor, I no longer compete with the people that do contract in business. I basically uh, hire the job. I do the the subdivision or the approval, and I hire 99.9% of all the workers are people that have done business with us in the past where I could hire them as subcontractors. So I'm no longer competing with their companies, with their friends, with their family, with their employee to make a living. I became an ally, ally to them. And instead of just working for the dollar, I started letting the dollars work for us to be able to leverage connections and be able to use business to be able to reach people for God. Instead of just pay them for what they've done, we came and partnered up with them and grew their business. Instead of just being a small subcontractor, we taught them how to incorporate, how to get the proper insurances and licenses, and to instill good financial principles and be able to to be charitable, we started helping them become more charitable before they were givers. And when they got a hold of that thought and that idea that they could improve the community through their work and their effort, then they were like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing it for me? You're not asking me for money or anything like that. And then we were able to share our faith story with them to be able to be an example through our business, to be able to meet the physical need of a lot of people that need it to be able to help them just the same way that I wish somebody would have helped me 20, 25 years ago and be able to be that example for me and be able to, to be the light and say to somebody like a guidance counselor, like you're doing this work, but I've seen you over the years and you have this talent, that talent. Why don't you put it into this kind of format and help them achieve that instead of just critique, we were really would partner up with them until they succeed. Mm-hmm. And that became a life mission and and a, and a faith driven business, if if you if you could call it that. These are primarily ex convicts, is that correct? A, a lot of them are. Yeah, and, and it's sad to say in the construction business, not just in convicts, but drug use, alcohol use, lack of management in every form. A, a lot of the people that are on the lower totem pole of the construction business are from that kind of background. You basically teach them the principles of good business and you get them set up in business and then you hire them as subcontractors to do the work that you normally would have done, but you're not competing against them anymore because you don't do that. Exactly. And from basic things like most people that just coming out of jail and they need a second chance, they're introduced to us by their pastors. We work with a network of pastors throughout the whole entire region their pastors know what we do with other companies and they refer them to us. Mm-hmm. And when they come, all they're looking at is what they've been labeled over the years that you can't do this, you can't do. So they're thinking what they can't do. Everything in their world is limited by what they can't do. When I come in or when my wife comes in, we sit down with them and say, I understand what you can't do, but can we talk for a second in here about what you can do? Yeah. And it's a completely mind shift from everything they've been taught over the years that 
You're never going to be able to get a license, a professional license. You're never going to be able to work for a big corporations. So when they come out, what are they going to do? They're going to go back to the life of crime, unless if somebody like us and other companies will be able to come alongside of them and say, look, for landscaping, you don't need a license. Why don't we just get the right insurance? Is We actually made invoices, letterheads for people. I remember one company that sticks out and it was so organic is a demolition company mm-hmm. that we started. And Eddie was, was the owner of that company and he was limited with his thinking. And we were just brainstorming one day and I said, why don't you start a demolition company? And he said, what do you mean? We start a company. Why don't we just set it up and I'll help you build it. I'll help you incorporate. Just get a DBA to start. Mm-hmm. And why don't we call it Alpha and Omega? <laughs> so from start to finish. <laughs> yeah. And that was his demolition company name. We made the invoice on the spot. We made the logo on the spot from borrowed images on Google. And before you know it, he was handling the entire region for Lowe's Home Improvement Demolition. Lowe's Home Improvement was subcontracting with us to do all the kitchens and bathroom, and we needed a demolition crew that was so thorough and so clean. So Eddie and his crew will just come in in less than three to four hours and completely storm in, storm out, and they're done. That's incredible. Landscaping company, painting companies. There were so many businesses that don't require a major license. They just require somebody to be honest and want to really take a chance on hiring some of the people. And we sponsor them. We try them. We gave them the opportunity to work on our own properties that did not have any occupants, vacant homes, new construction homes, and really sift through the people that really wanted a second chance before we jump in Mm -hmm. and put them in any client home and vet them out on our own dime and vet them out on our own properties before we could recommend them, before we'd be able to sponsor them and say, trust me, they've worked with us. They need a second chance. Give them a chance. And there was a lot of partners in the market that saw the value into that and gave these guys uh, the opportunity to start something new. What hope you've brought to these people. And I love the process that God set up for you to vet them. That's fantastic. Which is why you say, and which is why we started the whole conversation with what you become in life does not have to be determined by where you came from. Exactly. And and to my understanding, from my point of view and how I was looking at that, I was looking at, I came from a poor family from a strange country, but that really applies to somebody that just need a second chance. Yeah. They're, They're coming from a place of neglect or abuse or alcohol abuse or drug abuse, sexual abuse, whatever that place, whatever that from is, all they see is just that black cloud following them around. And all they need is somebody just to come in and extend a helping hand and say, man, I know how you feel. I've been there. I've done that. I've screwed up so many times, but thank God for people like the Coppolinos and like Ron Burton in my life. Many, many other people that just God had placed in my life for the, for the last 25 years to extend a helping hand and say, I'll give you a chance. Let me, let me employ you for a month or two or three months until you figure out what you need to do. And I started looking at those less than perfect experiences back in my past as these were the stepping stone. These were the run on that ladder. 
that if the first and second run on that ladder were broken, I will never be able to get to the third run. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be that first run for somebody. And no matter what that cost me, even if it cost me a little bit more money or, or time or effort or whatever that is, that was well worth it because I could see their future and I could see it from my point of view and how much I would have appreciated if somebody would have done that for me 25 years ago. No doubt. As we finish up here, Charbel, I'd love for you to pray for our listeners, please. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Lord, I just, uh, I just pray, Lord, that you move somebody's heart. It's, it's a hope-given message that how much you love us, how much you love us in our worst times, how much you love us when we are the most, the dirtiest, the lowest, and how much you love a comeback, how much you love a nobody that you want to make somebody for your namesake. I pray, Lord, that for the people that just would listen to this and give them hope, that they have a chance, that if I can do it, they can do it. I also wanted to pray for another part, for the people that can provide that help and be the helping hand, Lord, whatever that means. Whether that just giving somebody a temporary job or just giving an advice or just putting their talent to work to help lift somebody up. Lord, I just pray that you move mountains through your grace and your mercy by giving hope to people that desperately need it, especially in this time of need with all this mess that our country is going through. Lord, I just pray that you lift men and women, warriors in your name, that will move the needle toward peace, toward reconciliation with you, because that's the ultimate thing. In Jesus' mighty name, we approach you today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Charbel. Wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And God bless you. And God bless you, listeners. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.